RBA, there's a hole in the bucket. PwC scandal rocks world financial foundations and the untold story of US bank bailouts coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 2nd of June. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. On today's show, we're going to be discussing how the RBA is trying to fix inflation and how it should really be fixed. And, and an excellent uh, exchange in the Senate estimates this week on that subject. Yep. Uh, and also the PwC scandal that just won't go away and in fact is really rocking and can Snowballing. rock the foundations of the global financial system, which yep. is, uh, has to go anyway. Yep. And, uh, and lastly, we're going to talk a little bit more about the US banking crisis and how it's not the uh, smaller regional banks that are the real ones in trouble. Yep. Now, don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe, share this as widely as you can, and you can also uh, find details below how you can follow through in supporting us by donating, if you're able to, to support everything that we're doing that we talk about on the show. Uh, and thanks to those who have already done so. Lisa, before we begin, I just want to mention uh, very briefly, if I can, uh, so we're, we're recording here on a Friday morning. Yesterday was the verdict in the case of Ben Robert Smith and um, you shouldn't misinterpret the verdict it's a civil case so that doesn't mean he's been found guilty in law of war crimes however the judge ruled against him because he's basically saying there's there on balance of probabilities there's some truth to those allegations um, what I'm interested in what we're interested in is what this may mean for David McBride David is a friend of the show uh, he's he's None of this war crime stuff would be known if he hadn't have leaked the documents as, a, a, as an Australian Army major who was a lawyer who was really disgusted by what he saw in Afghanistan. And he wasn't disgusted actually at the perpetrators as much as he was as at the brass, mm. at the top management, um, you know, the senior officers and the politicians who are ultimately responsible for that because they're the ones that kept us in this 20-year futile war. Um, so... Uh, David's case comes up uh, in November and there will, we will help with the campaign around. We've already been helping with the campaign, but there's going to be some more done along the lines of, of the kind of attention that's been brought to bear on the Assange case. Mm. Um, because otherwise, the man who exposed this wrongdoing faces 50 years in jail just for exposing it, right? Um, and and that's, that's atrocious. So... What's this space? We'll keep you updated on the things that we're going to do to help in that case. Yes, stay tuned. Okay, RBA, there's a hole in the bucket. Uh, now, next Tuesday, the RBA will have their meeting at the as they do at the beginning of every month, and they're again discussing whether to raise interest rates and the likelihood uh, bounds that they probably will raise interest rates again. Uh, you know, again, worsening the current situation for both mortgages and for renters, yep. um, making the cost of living crisis even worse than what it already is. So this um, debate again was raised in Senate estimates this week and the good old faithful Green Senator Nick McKim came to the party and did an excellent job again in following up on what's been a couple of years now 
of really nailing down um, RBA Governor Philip Lowe on you know how he expects just having this one tool yep. of interest rates to really work you know, for the entire economy and for the people that represent that economy, which it clearly is not. Lisa, some people think um, or, or, or uh, toy with the idea that we may not live in a real world but in a simulation controlled by AI in which some of our fellow human beings are not actually human but they're kind of like uh, uh, humanoid AI robot types. I reckon if there's any truth to that, <laughs> Philip Lowe. Lowe should be on that list. You're going to see this. Oh in, you're going to see this in the video. Yeah. We're going to play a video now. But let me just say before we do, um, we've had we could be having we will be the twelfth interest rate rise in thirteen months if that happens next Tuesday. And um, whilst interest rates should be normalised because they were ridiculously low, mm. right? So in a sense of being, they're just being normalised. But this is only, they're only doing this because it's this, they only have one idea of how to fight inflation, which is basically cr- crush people's daily well-being. Yeah, squeeze right? the people. Squeeze the people to fight inflation. So Nick McKim has taken up the right subject and he actually, what, I mean, you've got credit where it's due. What's the opening of this especially? But we're going to play it to a certain point where, where it all descends into mm. shambles. But Nick McKim nails um, the RBA governor, and then we can talk about that in a minute. So what's the clip? Thank you, thank you Senator back. Smith. Um, there may be time. Um, Senator McKim. Uh, thank you. Dr Lowe, you've spoken a little bit about rents just in the recent exchanges. So can I just be clear with what you're advising the committee? Are you... You support the contention that rents are uh, increases in rents are putting upward pressure on inflation. Correct. Uh, it's contributing certainly, yes. Yes, and it will for a while yet. Yes. Now, your most recent statement on monetary policy says demand to purchase new detached housing remained exceptionally low, uh, reflecting a range of factors including higher costs of land and construction, falling established home prices and poor buyer sentiment. Would you accept the contention that interest rates, interest rate increases from the RBA are playing a role in all of those factors? That is, high cost of land and construction, falling established home prices and poor buyer sentiment. I think higher interest rates do reduce the demand for new construction for a period of time. That's, that's true. But that... I, Hesitant to kind of for you to draw the conclusion that's the main thing going on. No, 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 the but they play a role. Really the, it's, it's a factor, but um, the main thing is the su- inflexibility on the supply side of the housing market. I'm simply yeah, yeah, asking yeah, for your yeah, agreement yeah, to it's, the it's, um, that they play it's a, a role. It's a, it's a factor. That's one of the yeah. transmission mechanisms for monetary policy. That's yeah, true. that's right. So higher rents equals higher inflation equals higher interest rates equals higher rents. Yep. Well, there's a hole in the bucket, isn't there, dear Dr Lowe? <laughs> <laughs> there is, because um, higher interest rates mean weaker growth in aggregate demand, lower incomes and less capacity to pay. So it affects the demand side as well. But and, the point I'm making yeah. is it's a, it's a vicious cycle for renters, Dr Lowe, isn't it? Because you've got higher rents, which leads to higher inflation, which leads to the RBA putting up interest rates, which leads to higher rents. I mean... And it's the people who are renting 
who are just paying an exorbitant price at the moment for that vicious cycle. I don't think the, the, cycle, I, the cycle doesn't work like that because um, higher interest rates are contributing a bit to higher rents, but it's not the main factor. But we're not then responding to, to um, with the interest rates at the higher rents again. No, you're responding um, to interest rate. You're responding to higher inflation yeah. by putting up interest yeah. rates, yeah. which is then as you've just agreed, putting upward pressure on rents, yeah, which is putting upward pressure on inflation. I, mean, that, that, I know I'm not suggesting these aren't the only elements, yeah, but yeah. that is a cycle yeah. that exists, does it well, not? There well, there is an element there, and the solution to it isn't lower interest rates. All right. Because well, that, would, that, that would have other consequences that we've talked about. The solution to all these problems in the housing market is supply, supply, supply. Well, yes. and in you fact, know, there are other things that... We need to invest that, in housing. Well, we do. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be nice if Labor actually put forward a package oh, that right. did constitute a significant, oh, a significant investment in the housing rather than making the problem worse. Rather than making the problem worse, which is what Labor's proposing to do. But, Dr Lowe, I want to talk... Some of us have actual questions for the governor. That's right. and that wasn't a question. Despite the lovers, Tiff going was, on here. I was responding to an interjection, an unruly, disorderly interjection. So this is taking up my time. So I would like to ask. We don't get all that much access to Dr. Lowe. So and thank you again for coming in, Dr. Lowe. So you were asked about alternatives to fight inflation at the National Press Club in April, and um, you, you mentioned tax reform. Um, and I'm very pleased to hear you say that, and you, you've referred to it again this morning. Um, but I want to put this to you. It, like, there are other options, apart from tax reform, are there not? I, I hope you weren't mounting an argument this morning that we should outsource tax policy from the government to some independent no. authority like the no. RBA. No. But um, what about things like um, price control? Like that's an that's sorry, what? price control, Dr. Lowe, uh, which the government, I point out, is already engaged in in the energy sector. We recall Parliament actually <laughs> last year to deliver price control, an element of price control in the energy sector. So there's price control, there's tax policy, there's even um, prudential policy that could make a difference in those areas. Would you agree with that? Well, in some limited and specific circumstances, I understand that price controls can be beneficial, but. As a general proposition, I think it's the wrong way to go because price controls distort the supply side of the economy. They might help kind of reduce some kind of problems with kind of affordability, but price controls distort supply. <laughs> now, Elisa, those po so what happened at the end there is those major party politicians are having pot shots at each other and whatever, but that's on Nick McKim's Like, he, he was given 10 minutes to ask his questions, right? They're actually interfering with the kind of questions he's asking because these questions aren't coming from the major parties. Mm. These questions are only coming from the crossbenchers. Mm -hmm. um, you, you may not have noticed, but the guy next, sitting next to the McKim in the clip, you only see his shoulder, is Malcolm Roberts. Mm -hmm. He was lined up to ask questions. Jared Rennick, Senator Jared Rennick from the, from the LNP, is the only major party politician who ever asked these questions, but he's, a bit of, he's becoming a bit of a pariah in his own party because he does this sort of thing. But it's the crossbenchers that are, that are putting the pressure on the RBA and say, you've got to be accountable for what you're doing here. And um, McKim had him stone cold. And then uh, he, uh, Philip Lowe had the gall to say, the answer is not lowering rates. Well, I'm not disagreeing with that, but he, he and his predecessor presided over the extraordinary historical lowering of rates down to zero to prop up this property bubble. And contemplated going negative, remember? Contemplated going negative. 
just to create a bubble that now has all these people mm. trapped in, in unpayable mortgage debt. They created that. That guy and his predecessor, they created that, mm. right? And then when Nick McKim suggested we could have some kind of regulatory measures, God forbid, to yeah. constrain prices, such as price controls or yeah. even, as he's proposed previously, regulations of lending in terms of where banks are allowed to lend money or not. In Which is terms how we used to do it. Reining in mortgage asset bubbles and so forth. This, before, before Hawke and Keating deregulated the financial system in Australia, the way inflation was dealt with when it, when it needed to be was the RBA would direct the private banks and say you must um, decrease your lending in mm. this area, increase your lending in that area because of, there's, never, there's never a bubble of, of everything. There's bubbles, mm. right? And the, the driver of our, our main one is the property bubble and then the supply chain, chain issue. Um, so they could be the RBA could be directing investment into infrastructure and product and, and industries that increase productivity and mean we supply things for ourselves. We have import, what they call import substitution and solve the supply chain problem whilst decreasing credit for the property bubble to get those prices mm. down and make mm. housing affordable. They could do that, mm. but instead, no, no, just interest rates across the board and crush families all around Australia. Yeah, and so Lowe was trying to say, oh, you can't have price controls because that would hurt supply. In other words, the market mechanisms, if the prices don't come up, would not be there so that builders come in to build more homes. But yeah. then look what's happening anyway. I mean, yeah. we've had a record number of bankruptcies of construction companies and builders, 1,300, I think the figure was for the year so far, surpassing last year already an average, I believe, of about five a day. Uh, biting the dust. So it's not working anyway. No. Also, it is the ultimate irony <clears throat> that coming out of the mouth of the RBA governor when he's talking about interest rate rises and the consequence of that, he says you can't have price controls. <laughs> Do you know what the cash rate is? <laughs> it's, a pri- it's a price control on money. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. That's all he does is impose a price control on one part of the economy. That's his job. Yeah. I mean, right? there's no real free market, really, when you look at how these kind of things operate. So all of their ideological bent in this, yeah. for this yeah. direction is, is not even real. Um, now, let's talk about how to really fix inflation, though, because I want to put up a graph here which shows... Um, the inflation historically in China, because China still uses these kinds of price controls. You know, they didn't Mm. deregulate. In fact, when everyone else was deregulating, they started introducing more regulations when Glass-Steagall measures to prevent commercial banks from engaging in speculation were taken off in 1999 in the United States. China had just introduced it and was, you know, just pushing it all through and they went even further than the US had done. Um, so and they were, but they were toying with the idea because everyone else had dropped mm. Glass Steagall. By two thousand eight, China was toying with the idea, oh maybe we should drop it too. And then they saw what happened in two thousand eight and yeah. said, no way, Put the brakes <laughs> we're keeping on. that on. Um, so inflation's coming down at the moment in China, and this is due to the fact, and they've got. You can read more in this week's Australian Alert Service actually about um, new regulatory measures. They're always re-looking at the regulation and bringing more in, more regulation to bear, as they say, 
so that banks serve the real economy. They say that explicitly. This new regulator that just come in is quite renowned for making yep. that statement uh, regularly, which I mentioned in the article. Um, so they have financial regulation in place to constrain inflationary bubbles. They have a focus on the real economy, and a, a measure of that that I cited is that in March they had a 6% increase in electricity use, which of course they see as a good thing because that's a measure of the real economy growing. 40% of that increase for the month, which was a year-on-year measure, uh, was from industry, rising of industry. Their exports are rising. Um, Russia, interestingly enough, despite it having been uh, subjected to all the sanctions globally, which was meant to crush its economy, has the lowest inflation rate in Europe now at 2.3% and record low unemployment. So, you know, you have to have a focus on, and and Russia was forced to do this. Mm. You know, they had had a lot of deregulation and still have, you know, way too much. But having been cut off from a lot of the world, they had to say, right, we have to get our act together here and get our economy to serve our purposes, we can't just import everything anymore. And when you when you have war conditions, you stop leaving everything up mm. to the free market. You say, we've got to solve that problem, we've got to solve that, and you start solving those problems, and it's remarkable what can happen. Yeah, and the other thing in the article that uh, I cited is this summit of China and Central Asia, and I won't go through all of the examples, but they ran through at this summit. The stunning transformation... And people, Australians and average people around the world would have no clue at this burgeoning region of Central Asia, desert, middle of nowhere, you would think it is. Um, But the amount of development projects, um, dry ports, rail, tunnels, highways that has been built in, well, 10 years since the Belt and Road was announced um, is just absolutely stunning. We'll put up some pictures in the background. Um, so the global majority of the world are talking with China and Russia. Um, yep. There's, you know, various summits, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, um, the BRICS summit coming up later this year, the Central Asian summits, there's been big forums in Moscow, the Eurasian Economic Forum discussing how to create a new financial architecture around the countries that actually want to build and develop. And have a look at this graph from the IMF about the rise of the BRICS compared to the G7, where you can see the the size of the G7 economies is shrinking. The BRICS um, group is growing, and now they're um, overlapping, Mm. right? The two lines have overlapped. Now, you can see from the graph, the BRICS growth is driven by China. It's responsible for the majority of it. But but it's an example why those countries are working with China and other countries want to join. They want to be part of... That's the growing engine Mm -hmm. for the world economy, right? Um, and we, unfortunately, mm. as a nation, have tied ourselves to the sinking stone. Yeah, no, because China um, came up with the idea of the Belt and Road to share the model and the mechanisms they had created, yeah. you know, which got us through, got the world through the global financial crisis to propel the world economy with economic development and infrastructure. Um, and that was had been based on the way they built the nation over 40 years out of poverty. Yeah. Uh, which are, you have an interesting report well, we've got a little, to add on that. We've got a little clip that we'd like to play now. Um, and it's the, 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 my report is how this clip came about, that we're going to play it. So last year, um, regular viewers remember that I was invited and I went and had dinner with the Chinese ambassador at the Chinese embassy. And I was accompanied by the former Associate Foreign Minister 
of New Zealand, Matt Robson, who was part of the Helen Clark government in the early 2000s. Uh, so he was visiting Australia and we were in Canberra for our postal bank forum because Matt, Matt was part of the government and the party that introduced a postal bank in New Zealand. Um, but Matt has a real um, passion for foreign affairs because he was the Associate Foreign Minister as well. Um, and we got this invitation and we went along. Now, um, I got, I got criticised uh, by media figures for, for doing this, right? For, and I'm thinking, well, get stuff. This is our biggest trading partner, right? Um, I, I am going to show... If no one else, if, if everyone else is too scared to, I'm not. I'm going to show our biggest trading partner that there are people in Australia that are not afraid of China and are, and, and are friendly towards China. Um, about a month after I did this, Peter Dutton went and had dinner with him too, mm. right? And I, I think I might claim a tiny amount of credit that sort of break, you know, breaking the ice to make it sort of more normal that, hey, this sort of dialogue should take place. Um, but... When I was there, I'm representing a political party, the Citizens Party, right? And um, so the Chinese embassy reached out to me last week to invite me on behalf of the Citizens Party to observe a, a forum, a, a Communist Party of China forum, so like a, their, their political party's forum that was held in Wuhan. And it was about the economic development, the successful economic development of the Hubei, the Hubei province which Wuhan's the capital of. Um, I got that right, right, producer? Okay, just checking with my producer. <laughs> um, now, it was a long... I only got to, to, to observe some of it, and we'll put the link below. People can watch the whole two hours if they want. We're going to play a little clip, though, because what they, they had a section there where they got locals to tell success stories. Mm. Now, you're, you know, like the, the, the cynical smart alecks in the media will say, oh, look, this is Chinese propaganda. Well... If propaganda just means telling good stories about yourself, well, fine, call it propaganda if you want. But at least they've got good stories to tell. Mm. And that's what I want to show people. They, this is a good story. And so they have, they had a, they, the, they covered the spectrum of economic development. So just before the person we're going to see, there was a young guy from a university in Wuhan talking about um, the role him, he and his colleagues have played in China's space program, which is incredibly successful. This girl, though, is going to tell a very, very different story, but it does relate to the way China has succeeded in its poverty alleviation program. And it hasn't done it by just writing checks, throwing welfare at the problem. It has not done that. And I want you to listen to her story. It goes for about three minutes. Um, and just think about yourself, just think about what she's saying and then think, well, you know, we've got, we've got pockets of problems in Australia. We've got a terrible... Um, problem that just you know, seems intractable with um, you know Indigenous Australians, First Nations people, right? Um, everyone's you know how do we how do we um, close the gap and all this kind of stuff? Mm. We've taken a different we've taken the welfare approach. They've taken a different approach, but and this is a communist. This is the Communist Party doing it, and they're proud of their results. And I think they should be proud of their results. Have and a it look. depends on the initiative of people in it that does. communist. Well, she, you make it. it yes. What, watch, watch for this. This is not imposed top down. Mm. This depends on the people taking responsibility for themselves. Mm. So have a look. Good afternoon. My name is Cheng Ju. Ju in Chinese means orange, so my villagers always call me Little Orange. I was born after 1990s, and I am also the village party branch secretary of Dashi village. 
Well, it may be the lowest position in China, but you know what? In my village, I am the highest level official. This is Dashi Village, my hometown. My village was really, really poor. I still remember when I was little. There was only one pair of rain shoes in my home, so whenever it rained, only the one who went out could use it. In 2009, when I left for university, I told myself, "Well, one day I must come back someday in the future to help my villagers to get rich." In 2014, I was elected as secretary of my village party branch. And at that time, my village had over 1,000 villagers, but only one road that leads to outside world. Everyone knows that if one wants to get rich, build roads first. But the problem is, we had no money. So I gathered my villagers and told that those who have give money and those who have not give your labor. Once we get subsidies from the government, we will pay money back to you. But I was only a new hand, a young lady who was not that reliable. So many villagers said, "What if all my money was lost? Who can assure me that the money would be paid back?" As a new official, I must establish my credibility and make it done. So I told my villagers, "Let's all make an effort and do whatever we can. If we cannot get subsidies from the government, I will sell my house, and I assure you that all your money will be paid back." And without noticing my father, I, I would sell my house. And、uh, finally, I win. I won their supports and won their trust. After three months' hard work, a 3.5-kilometer road was successfully built. After the road was built, the next task is to help villagers become rich. So I, along with other CPC members in my village, we helped villagers to grow herbs and loquats, raise crawfish and goats. If you visit to、uh, our village now, you will find it's totally different. Currently, every household can get access to the internet, and mobile phones become farm tools. Why do I say so? Well, an e-commerce building has been established by the country government, county government, to offer online sales platform for all the villages. We no longer need to take our products to larger cities by ourselves. Instead, we put the product items on e-commerce platform and sell them online. Now, a remote and poor mountainous village like Dashi becomes a source of wealth. Now, one of the things that China has ensured to back up that process is banking is available everywhere. I mean, they have postal banking, they have,、yep. um, you know, thousands upon thousands of banks of every kind, and their system supports that. And we have a bit of an update here on the, the possibility of Australia moving into postal banking or public banking of some kind. Well,、uh, this the clip we're going to play now is from it was also from Senate estimates. So the last two weeks have been Senate estimates, and this is from a week ago in Senate estimates. And you know, the person you're going to see is the National Party Senator Perrin Davy. Now, Perrin Davy is in damage control because she, on behalf of her party, put up the Regional Banking Task Force in late 2021, and it was garbage. They stacked it. Eight of the eleven members represented banks. And the outcome just rubber stamped the branch closures. And we got up this new inquiry because of the results of her task force. Right?、Um, she is very sore at us. She, she, she's part of the same faction of the National Party as David Littleproud, 
who told me to my face that no way are we going to have a, um, a, a, a public bank in Australia. Um, you know, no way it's not going to happen, mate. The world's moved on. And he's a banker. David Littleproud is a banker, right? So she's in that faction. And the thing is, though, our inquiry and the discussion of a postal bank is everywhere, right? We are kicking goals. We've made West... We, we did something that the, her task force didn't achieve. We made mm-hmm. West back, back down, right? So she's sore. And how does she respond to that? Well, we'll play a few minutes of her questioning in Parliament of the Australia Post um, uh, CEO uh, who... <laughs> uh, this was coordinated. I'll, I'll put up a headline. There's a, there's a publication called The Mandarin which basically misrepresented this exchange by basically saying, oh, the headline was something like Australia Post um, is not... Australia Post has no plans to become a bank. That's how they reported this exchange. That's not what this is about. He's just saying it's not our decision, right? But listen, what's the exchange? And you can see where Perrin Dave is coming from, especially pay attention to what she says about competition. Senator Davey. Thank you very much. Um, I just have a couple of questions about Bank at Post, um, which I've asked you about in previous estimates. uh, So we know the broad and far-reaching stretch of... um, Bank of Post services and the fact that they provide services for, on behalf of about 81 financial institutions across Australia. I just want to ask, there has been quite um, a level of advocacy for a Commonwealth postal bank. Um, Have you had conversations with those advocates about what that would mean for Australia Post and Bank of Post? Uh, thank you, Senator. Now, look, I have read uh, the media and some uh, people raising that prospect. Uh, we have had no discussions with anybody uh, formally or informally. Uh, we are very uh, happy to continue providing over-the-counter services, as you say, correctly, for 81 financial institutions, uh, 1,150 uh, locations in regional Australia where there are no banks, and Bank at Post is the only banking uh, facility. Uh, but uh, we've had no discussions with any of those advocates. Um, It has been uh, raised with me concern that a Commonwealth postal bank would uh, directly compete against the other uh, financial institutions that are serviced through Bank at Post, which may see a withdrawal of their support or their um, uh, arrangements with Bank at Post and might limit customer choice. Uh, have you uh, any uh, thoughts on that or has anyone made those representations to you or have you had conversations with the financial institutions that you have arrangements with? Uh, no, Senator. We've had no discussions uh, in regarding uh, that, that, that matter. We have long-term contracts in place with uh, three of the large uh, four banks, uh, NatWest, Westpac and Commonwealth Bank. As I say, we continue to provide uh, you know, a range of particularly uh, consumer banking services uh, uh, to 81 financial institutions, uh, and anything beyond uh, our over-the-counter services is not a matter for Australia Post. Mm-hmm. So, a couple of things, Elisa. Um, the, the Australia Post people, by the end there, they're talking about, hey, we need to expand services at post offices, because why? Well, even at a minimum, there's 1,150 post offices. That is the only um, financial service in town. That's it. The only footprint. But all the limitations, by the way, if you go to Bank at Post and you see that the service there is more limited than the bank, those limitations are imposed by the banks, not by Australia Post, 
right? So that's that's a problem. It's the banks that that are that are the problem there, and they're not even paying Australia Post properly anymore to be the agency for them through Bank of Post. So they're trying to they're trying to wrestle with that problem. But Perrin Davy and these this faction of the National Party that oppose this policy, they've shown their true colours. Oh, the, you know we don't you know oh that's going to be unfair competition for the banks. Excuse me, that's that's exactly why you need a postal bank. If you want to call it unfair, good. There's four institutions that need unfair competition. Are you kidding? Are you kidding, Perrin Davy? You want to align with CBA, Westpac, National Australia Bank and ANZ? Is that the hill you want to die on? Go ahead. You will. <laughs> you absolutely will. This is crazy. Those banks are an oligopoly. They, they, the only way you're going to break up that oligopoly and make them function properly is if they have to compete properly and nothing. they're so powerful they won't be able to compete with anything in the private sector. Mm. It will never match them. The only thing that can make compete is a government bank. Now, speaking of scandalous assertions, our next topic is PwC scandal rocks world financial foundations. And this is also coming out of Senate estimates discussions this week uh, in which questioning of Australian Taxation Office and other figures revealed that um, with the multinational anti-avoidance, tax avoidance law that came into effect in 2016... Yep. The ATO realised already the very next day that some, something <laughs> funny was going on because the 44 multinationals that were affected by it came in with ready-made schemes to, to dodge, dodge it. <laughs> so already the light had turned on, something's going on here, and it took them a bit longer. How come they're prepared? We have, we've got the... We've got the kryptonite well, here against them and they're already prepared for it. So that was 2016. 2017, the ATO obviously had done some looking and had become aware of the PwC breach of confidentiality. Of course, PwC had helped to draft with advising, advising um, the Treasurer's Office yep. this bill. And then they'd gone, as we know, because the scandals revealed that they'd gone and let everybody know through their... Organisation. Their, their man who was in the in the drafting group, he had signed a confidentiality agreement. He broke that, told his yeah. partners, and his partners sent out emails, we can help you, to all their clients saying, we can help you get around these new laws that are coming in. So the wheels keep turning rather slowly, and by 2018, the ATO had shared this evidence with the Australian Federal Police. And meanwhile, um, from 2018 until today the ATO had to deploy an assistant commissioner precisely on this subject with 20 staff, mind you. (laughs) Um, The AFP considered the case at that point for a year, repeatedly requesting information from the ATO, which the ATO could not divulge, which the AFP knew, and instead of going and getting the warrants to get the information for themselves, they just concluded that they had insufficient evidence to proceed with a criminal complaint. Um, Instead, it was referred to the Tax Practitioners Board, which resulted finally by the beginning of this year in the head of tax practice at PwC, Peter Collins, being banned for two years. (laughs) You know, tough. So in these hearings, uh, a number of things were drawn out, but one of the key things was that Senator Pocock asked the ATO, so, you know, while all this was going on, you never thought to raise this with a government minister? And the ATO responded that it would have been a breach of the legislation that requires them to protect information and not share it with unauthorised people, which evidently includes government ministers. Well, and, and think about uh, the 
AFP referral was 2018, and this is it's 2023. This is five years later, mm. right? This is coming. How back. much tax has been dodged between then and now? And, and and so there's two aspects to this. There's PwC's criminality and corruption um, interfacing with the government, and then there's just the the laws are written mm. to allow those things to be covered up. Yeah. Right. Even if even if well-meaning people don't want to be covered, don't want to cover them up, they don't have a choice. Because if someone in the ATO had have said, well, we're going to say it anyway, mm. they might be facing 150 years in jail like uh, well, the other Richard Boyle now. Mm. Richard Boyle revealed things about the ATO, yeah. and he's now facing 150 years in jail, yeah. right? I mean, we are not a country that wants transparency. We are full of it. We are absolutely full of it. We have no moral superiority on the world stage whatsoever. Get that out of your head. These are the cases that absolutely prove it. But... Um, this is this is potentially huge, uh, Elisa. I'll try and be quick on this, but I want to just sketch a bit of a, a bit of an understanding for people. We're in a period of um, uh, global financial tumult going back to 2008, actually before that, but it really it really erupted in 2008. And um, ever since 2008, which was a crash of the financial system, everything's been done to, to try and um, just put. You know, fingers in the dike to stop the to stop the dam breaking, rather than solve the problem, and that includes central banks flooding the system with money and all that kind of stuff, right? But um, 2008 was the culmination of de- two decades, at least more, two to three decades of unbridled speculation that started in the 1980s, and these financial institutions stopped making money by being proper financial institutions. They just became a casino, mm. right? And every year they had to produce books to show that they were still sound financial institutions that are audited. And those auditors are four companies, four partnerships, PwC, Ernst & Young, KPMG, and Deloitte. It used to be five before, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, the big four. Audit 98%, something like 98% of the world's biggest banks and multinational corporations. They give them a clean bill of health. Every single bank that collapsed in the GFC in 2008 had just had a clean audit from one of those companies, every single one. But get this, because they're partnerships, the British, especially in Jersey, allowed them to set up a structure whereby they could be these huge multinationals but still still maintain the benefits of a partnership, including secrecy. And I was I was part of a Senate inqu- hearing back in 2019 where Senator, Green Senator Peter Wish Wilson kept asking the question, who audits the auditors? And the answer is nobody. So if you look at the, the, the post-mortem of the 2008 crash, there were four, seven institutions actually that, that bore special responsibility and nothing was done to them. The four auditors and the three ratings agencies. Remember mm. Standard & Poor's, they, they rated all this junk as AAA, right? Those are the gatekeepers mm. of the financial system, the, the actual gatekeepers. And nobody has touched them because I can tell you now there would be a symbiotic relationship between... Like, we now see what the kind of criminality PwC is capable of, but it's the auditor for some of the most the biggest crooks in the financial system. It knows their criminality too, and they have a vest. And, and, and the governments are all getting money from these banks, etc. The political parties that form governments, they've all got this vested interest in, in um, keeping each other, watching each other's back. Mm. We wrote in the alert this week that one of the reasons this, this this is coming out now is because there's actually shifting political sands where there's more and more cross benches in the parties. The two major parties, I tell you, they interface the financial system, both of them in a very, very corrupt way. That's why you'll get individual Labor or individual coalition members of Parliament, they sound really good. But when they're in there, all they do is make excuses about why they can't change anything. 
That's also why a lot of the best footage you'll see from these hearings comes from the Greens. Because in my experience, all the crossbenchers, we're happy to work with all of them because at least they're not answerable to vested interests, right? And so it was, Bo it was Barbara Pocock who got this sort of stuff coming out. Um, now, our party was ahead of the game on this. In 2019, the reason I was at this hearing is because we put up a bill back then. Uh, Bob Catter introduced it in Parliament to audit our big four banks using the government's auditor, the Auditor-General, not the big four accounting firms, because we said you cannot have any confidence in the, in the soundness of our banks if they've been signed off by these big four that are responsible for the global financial crisis, right? Um, that came out of the work that was done by the British Labor Party, which for a while was, was actually under the leadership of a true outsider. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn was an absolute threat to the corruption of the world financial system and to the, the war machine. He's not a perfect person, but I can tell you now, he was not owned by them. He's the, only, he's, the, he's the only person who's come closest to power in the world, real power in the world, who would have been a genuine threat. And that's why they destroyed him mm. as a leader of the party. His party appointed a, an accounting professor who's a friend of ours, Prem Sikha, who's known as the activist accountant, to do a report on reforming the audit industry in 2018. And it was Prem Sikha who put out this report pointing out all this corruption. Um, and that led to us saying, well, let's, let's help with the reform process. Um, uh, when Prem was announced as the, as, as the person who was going to conduct this inquiry, he told me all the auditing firms and banks in the City of London contacted him and said, oh, come for lunch, come for dinner, come for this meeting, come and have drinks. And he turned every one of them down. Let me buy you off. Exactly, because he knew that's what they were trying to do. He turned every one of them down and he said, no, you come to my office. Where's your office? And he said, it's at the McDonald's in Embankment Station in London. Because he lived out of town, he'd catch the train to, to that station, he'd, he'd get his laptop set up at the McDonald's, he said you only needed a cup of tea an hour to, to be able to stay there, free Wi-Fi, and he'd make these people in pinstripe suits come and see him there because he refused to be bought off. And, and that actually, that actually kick-started this increased scrutiny of this problem. Mm. And now, there's through, a, through a we can't go through every single um, cause and effect knock-on, now it's erupted into a massive corruption scandal in Australia that's being noticed around the world. And people around the world are saying about PwC, this could be its Arthur Anderson moment. And Arthur, there used to be, it's down to the big four, there used to be big five. Mm. Arthur Anderson was the big one that signed off on Enron. And when Enron collapsed in 2001, Arthur Anderson collapsed in 2002 because it destroyed its credibility. And this could be the same for PwC mm, yeah. that's happening now. And that has huge implications for the entire global financial system. Mm. And just to mention too, the other thing that had happened in the UK in the last few years is the collapse of Carillion, which <coughs> was this company that um, you know, ran all these contracts for government departments and government services. And you have a big collapse like that and it suddenly rips the yeah. rug out from under all your public service and public sector. You see the impact of having outsourced everything. And, of course, we had here in Australia a Senate inquiry which concluded in November 2021, uh, <clears throat> which was headlined APS Inc., meaning Australian Public Service Incorporated, undermining public sector capability and performance, which went through chapter and verse in terms of policies which... Um, you know, just arbitrary, really, like putting a cap 
on public, the number of public servants and making a certain amount of things being out to be outsourced for that reason, which they documented led to this complete loss of capability, expertise and resources within any given sector. And this is a really especially affecting areas like aged care, veterans affairs, NDIS, which require a lot of specialised skills, understanding and knowledge of existing legislation to be able to navigate, um, you know, people's cases and so forth. Um, Up to 75% of some departments was outsourced to consultancies and or labour hire. Uh, And of course, when the contracts would expire with any given uh, uh, consultancy, then the public service lost all of that accumulated skill. And one way to think about it, Elisa, is because there's four, the, the, the four auditors are also consultants, right? So there's four of them and there's two other big, there's three other big ones, um, uh, Boston Consulting, McKinsey and Accenture, which is actually what's left of Arthur Anderson. So there's seven. They're all multinationals. Mm. And when you see in cases like Australia how much they do the, the functions of what the public service used to do, what you've got to think of it, hang on, this is a globalised, privatised public service we've got. Mm. Globalised, privatised public service. This is crazy. Privatised government. It's, exactly. It's government Pri- by private consultants. Exactly. International, multinational, multinational democracy. private consultants. It's the opposite of democracy. Yeah, unelected bureaucrats it is, it governing. Is, it is fascism by definition, mm, the corporate of the right. state. Yes. Now... You also mentioned, of course, that this has implications for the global financial system and I want to turn to our final topic now, the untold story of US bank bailouts because, look, the financial system is coming Mm. down. It's been coming down for quite a while and there's efforts to prop it up every step of the way rather than to actually solve the issue, as we've been talking about in this country for over 30 years. Um, Now, we reported a couple of weeks ago when I was last on the show, I did a segment on the regional banking crisis in the United States. Um, There are three more US regional banks that are in trouble at the moment and, you know, on the verge of collapse and various efforts to prop them up along the way. And one of the things I mentioned in that last show was that there'd been a huge exodus of deposits from the banking system. And I want to talk about that a little bit more because the line that's been put out by the media uh, is basically saying um, that the problem is regional lenders, all the money is fleeing to the big banks because people feel that they're safer. And that's actually a complete lie, and we've documented it in the Australian Alert Service. Um, the, in a- from April to December last year, so April to December 2022, the biggest 25 American banks had a loss of deposits worth over $500 billion. During that same time frame, the 4,000 plus smaller American banks had an increase in deposits of $25 billion approximately. So it wasn't, you know, true at that point. And coming into March this year when we had the regional banking crisis, it was still the big lenders, the big 25, that were hemorrhaging deposits um, and we'll put up... So that is, the, that, is, that is the very opposite of what the public have been told. Yeah. 
oh, there's, there's no confidence in the small banks, everyone's fleeing to the big banks. Now, there was, of course, this crisis that started in March with the regional lenders. So people did start pulling out. There was a spike yeah. at that point of people pulling out of these smaller lenders. And we'll put up an animation in the background because you can see a comparison of the size of these collapses to 2008. I mean, these are some of the biggest collapses, bank collapses. But that was... but that. That when it did happen, when the confidence was lost, that was facilitated by the yes. media saying, casting doubt on the stability of the small banks, saying yes. got to get to the strength of the big ones. So the big banks turned it on to the small banks, one with that propaganda narrative. Secondly, the big banks started shorting the smaller banks, forcing deposit runs now, of course, these smaller banks were also victims to the fact that you had this period of very, very cheap credit from the Fed, low, low interest rates for a very long period of time. They put out a lot of loans into particularly things like commercial real estate. And yeah. of course, Silicon Valley Bank, you've got a lot of money going into the tech sector and so forth. Fine, that's fair enough. But when the interest rates started going up, a number of things started happening. On one hand, you had... Um, the uh, assets on the books of the banks, things like treasuries, that started devaluing. So yes. their asset book was going down in value. At the same time, a lot of these banks couldn't keep putting up rates for their depositors and depositors were seeing higher interest rates elsewhere. So a lot of people just started pulling out, especially the big depositors and these Silicon Valley banks, you know, most of their depositors are very, very big yep, companies yep. that have large deposits and there was a huge move to things like you can go to treasurydirect.gov and you can actually directly interface to buy treasury bonds and things that have a much higher yield for people that are trying to live off the deposits or earn interest rate. So the number of accounts had increased by 500% between in 2021 to 22 wow. at direct treasurydirect.gov. The, num- the purchases of bonds and things had increased by over 800%. So this was affecting these banks uh, who have to, of course, borrow short and lend long as per the banking yeah, model. Yeah. So if they start to lose deposits, you know, because that, that's their borrowings, they have to give it up immediately. They have to give that money back. They can't just hang on to it. But their loans that they've got out are long-term things, so they can't balance it up. So when you had the big banks come in and start shorting the shares of these regional banks that just exploded this whole problem. And up on the screen, you'll see that we've got this chart showing the most shorted banks. This is a um, S&P global chart. Um, and you'll see the companies at the top, Silvergate Capital Corporation, First Republic Bank, which of course went down, and PacWest Bank Corp, which is one of the ones that's now on the chopping block as it being expected to be the next one to go. And the but point is they're all, they're all smaller regional banks. That's right. But now you look at the bailouts of these small regional banks, and I'll just take the example of First Republic to see who it benefited, because JP Morgan Chase started out as <clears throat> the advisor to find strategic options to save First Republic. It then put over 800 employees to work to cut a deal with the Federal uh, Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, to save First Republic, which ended up recommending, of course, that JP Morgan take it over. Um, FDIC agreed to eat 80% of any losses on single-family residential mortgages for seven years as part of this deal of JPM to take over 
First Republic. It agreed to eat 80% on commercial loans losses, including commercial real estate, which is where a lot of these loans have gone, as I said, for the next five years. As also an additional sweetener, the FDIC handed JP Morgan a $50 billion five-year fixed-rate loan at an undisclosed interest rate. They refused to disclose the interest rate. Probably nothing. Um, and this entire package, as Wall Street on Parade, which is an a excellent website that plays yeah. a watchdog role over all this kind of corruption, as they observed, all of this raises the question, who got the bailout? Uninsured depositors at First Republic Bank or JP Morgan Chase? Right, who is really in trouble here and risking bringing down the entire global system? And by the way, when you're talking about, I mean, JP Morgan outside of the because the biggest banks in the world are now these Chinese ones, of course, but outside of them because they've earned their actual size and scale, of the transatlantic financial system, J.P. Morgan Chase yeah, is the, the, is big, the one. big one. Um, J- and, and it's unusually, it's got the same CEO, Jamie Dimon, right? Mm. Jamie Dimon was there in 2008 pulling the strings for those bailouts and all that sort of stuff, and he's still there now. Um, dicta- and, and if you just got to look at the American political model, Wall Street dictates to the to the um, the Congress. You know, Trump ran on a platform of bringing back Glass Steagall, right? So that if you, you know, because now everyone's focused on the on the on the safety of deposits. Mm-hmm. Well, the only way to really the the reason the FDI was C was set up, it was set up not just as this because there's 20 trillion in deposits in America. The FDIC's got, what, $200 billion in it. It actually cannot insure those no. deposits. The FDIC was always set up to work in conjunction with Glass-Steagall, a gulf between speculation yeah. and deposit banks so that deposits never get into trouble, right? Because if you let the commercial banks and retail yep. banks speculate, you've got to be prepared to lose the lot, and you can't back it all up. And, and, and it's the banks like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs that crushed the moves to Glass-Steagall and made sure it never yes, happened. Yes. And ev- this everything gets rigged in their favour because of their political um, influence over the over the um, uh, the political system, mm. right? Um, and yeah, this is this is a case of the system being rigged, and that's why uh, you can sometimes look at this and go and get quite daunted by the idea of how you know you turn around and see another aspect of the system being rigged and think mm. this is. This problem is intractable because these financial powers are all powerful. And that's why we pointed out in the alert this week, though, Elisa, they, nothing is ever all powerful. And the way this PwC crisis has erupted nine years after the fact, mm. five years after the, the government agencies tried to do something about it in the way they could, um, and, and if it didn't, it didn't come out then, um, you think, well, it'd never come out. No, it's coming out now. Yeah. Because there are shifting political sands that are helping bring this out, right? And we are part of that process. Critical part, yeah. And what we're doing is saying, okay, here is the financial system as you have it, which is corrupt as sin, etc. It needs to be reformed. We're trying to give people the ideas of how to do that, um, some of which is actually here's regulations like Glass-Steagall. More fundamentally, here's what a better financial system would look like. And at the centre of it is government, a government bank, mm-hmm. right? A national bank that can set the standard of, of behaviour, um, pr- you know, prudence, uh, security, right, around which the economy will always function, whatever the private banks and operators do. Mm, that's right. And we've got the program and the policies ready to go to put in place. 
as long as you've got people that are prepared to fight for those policies, people who are prepared to fight for the truth, as we've just demonstrated, the truth will eventually come out and enable a transformation of things. So, yeah. uh, Lisa, I want to end on one funny story, which we just heard before. Um, so for the last few weeks, we've been telling people to make submissions, uh, anti-AUKUS submission, no to AUKUS, to this to the Senate inquiry into nuclear propulsion. The regulars will remember that. Um, we just discovered something. Uh, so uh, in the last, since 2017, our party has made a real name for itself by getting people to participate in Senate inquiries in big numbers. And the first one was the bail-in inquiry in 2017. And the main committee we've engaged with is the Senate Economics Committee, yeah. right? And we've flooded them. And over the time, we ended up making an enemy of the secretary of that committee who got sick to death of us. His name was Mark Fitt. And I, I had some run-ins with him. Right. He, he didn't like what he saw when the Citizens Party was involved in a campaign. Right. He knew he was going to get in undated. Yeah. Right. With submissions. And on the cash ban campaign, which was his committee as well, um, I had a real run in. It. He, hung, he hung up on me on the phone. Right. Anyway, he's not part of the Senate Economics Committee anymore. And, um, uh, you know, we've been dealing with someone different there. And, and I wonder where Mark Fit got to. Well, it turns out he, if, if he thought he was going to escape us, he hasn't because he moved on to the committee that's running this um, uh, AUKUS-related inquiry into this bill that we've just told everyone to flood. Yep. So um, Keep it up. good to renew acquaintance <laughs> with you again, Mr Fit. <laughs> the Citizens Party represents the citizens of, of Australia and as long as we're involved, mm. you will always hear what the citizens have to say. Yeah. So good job, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. See you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.